you. Tanner, Deanna, Garrett, Hunter, and Bree, and everyone else. Welcome to Woodmont Baptist on this Memorial Day weekend. We're honored to have a lot of guests with us today. I've already met several of you. Brianna's parents are here in the front. Are you guys Baptists? Because most back row Baptists, you know, they don't sit up on the front row like you guys. That's great. Thank you for being brave, Steve. And the Waynemans all up here in the front. Thank you, guys. Waymans have their son Todd here today who serves in our military. He's a chaplain, a stationed. Yeah, thank you, Todd, for being here and his family. It's some of the, the hardest, most uh, thankless work that uh, goes on in our military is, is chaplain, some of the most important ministry that, that goes on in the world. So we're honored to have you with us today, Todd. Thank you. Today we're going to look at, at two separate texts that I had planned to tackle separately uh, and then the, the Spiritual uh, Disciplines Conference happened, and we ended up taking them uh, together today. So you're going to get a two-for-one deal today. I promise you it won't be any longer than usual, but we are going to tackle two texts. We're going to spend most of our time in the first text, John chapter 7. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 40 to 52, and then we're going to take on John 753 through 811 later. So before uh, we dive into our, our text for today, let's recap some context for where we've been so far. You know, any text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want to say. So let's, let's back it up a little bit and see where we've been. Uh, so this is the seventh and final day at the Festival of Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Sukkot is what it was called in Hebrew, where all the, the Jews from all around uh, Judea would come up to Jerusalem for this festival. So it's a crowded time. And at the climactic moment of the festival, on the last day, there was kind of a closing ceremony where the high priest would climb the altar for the final and seventh time and he would raise the golden pitcher as high as he could after processing around the altar and down to the pool of Siloam, and, and as he raised that, that golden pitcher, everyone would ooh and ah, and it was precisely at that moment that Jesus Christ stood up amongst the crowd in the temple and proclaimed in verse 37, if anyone thirst, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The, the, the actual uh, Greek translation says something more like, out of his belly, out of his core of who he is, will flow rivers of living water. It's a promise of satisfaction and overflow of blessing into the lives of others. So how did people respond? Let's, let's see what the follow-up is here, starting in verse 40. How did the crowd react to this bold proclamation that Jesus Christ proclaims on the last day of Sukkot? Let's stand together as I read aloud John chapter 7, verse 40 through 52. Hear now the word of the Lord. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. 
Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? (laughs) Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, as a youth minister for for 12 years, you know, there often uh, arose an occasion where I would need to divide the students into groups, whether it was for a game or for a Bible study or for transportation purposes. And, And you get creative with how you divide students. Students don't want to be divided, so you have to do things like, okay, number off, one, two, three, four, you know, okay, one's over here, two's over here. Sometimes you get a little more creative. You say things like, okay, if you were born January, February, March, over in this corner. If you were born April, May, June, over here in this corner. Or sometimes you say, okay, everybody uh, line up by height. Okay, the, this, these five over here, these five over here. You, you have to find some generic way to divide them so you don't hurt anyone's feelings, right? But as a, a youth minister, you get experience with how to divide uh, people. And Jesus, once again, proves that he has an even better way to divide people. Jesus makes bold claims, and when he does so, it causes division. When Jesus makes this proclamation of living water, there are immediately three distinct groups that we see here, starting in verse 40. We see all this crowd gathered in the temple courts, and they're confronted with the claim that Jesus makes, that all who come to him, if they will partake of the living water that he provides, that he will slake their thirst forever, and from the core of who they are will flow streams of living water. How can that be? The people don't know. They're confused. So in verse 40, you see the first group believes that Jesus is the prophet. The prophet was the prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, way back when the Israelites were standing on the plains of Moab about to enter into the promised land. Moses tells them, look, God's going to send you a prophet like me. He's going to send you a great and mighty prophet who will come. And of course, he was prophesying about the Messiah. But the Jews in Jesus' day didn't understand that. They thought it was two separate things. There'd be a big prophet who would come, and then there'd be a Messiah who would come. But of course, Jesus was both of these things. So the second group that doesn't understand this, they say, no, 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 this isn't the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one, the Christ who is to come. And of course, both groups were right. They were arguing, but they were both correct. But then the third group shoots down both other groups. These are the more learned people in the crowd. They say, no way, you guys don't understand. This guy is from Nazareth up in Galilee. He can't possibly be the Messiah Because everyone knows the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Come on, Micah 5.2 makes that clear. The Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. 
So this third group must have believed that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic because he could not be Lord because he wasn't born in Bethlehem. The only two available options at that point are he's either a liar or a lunatic. You can't say he's a good man because he's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be sent from God on high. So verse 43 tells us there's great division among the crowds there in Jerusalem as to who Jesus really is, which is not surprising to Jesus, nor should it be surprising to you and me. The, the claims of Christianity have always caused great division. There are clear sides to be had when it comes to the claims of Christ. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus when 98% of his disciples left. All this crowd that had been following him and said, yeah, we're into this Jesus guy. Let's follow the Messiah. Let's leave our homes behind and, and get behind this guy. And he, he feeds the 5,000 and they say, this guy's awesome. We love him. And then he says, if anyone wants to have eternal life, they must partake of my body and my blood, not just subsist on the bread of survival, but on the bread of life. And most of the crowd says, gross, we're not having that. We don't want any part of that. That sounds terrible. And they go back to their old lives. A watershed is a clear divider, right? We talked about the continental divide. Everything on the west side, all the moisture that falls, rain, snow, everything that falls on the west side of the continental divide, from the Bering Strait of Alaska all the way to the tip of Chile in South America, everything on the west side of the continental divide feeds the Pacific Ocean. It's the watershed of the Pacific. Everything on the east side feeds the Atlantic. It's the Atlantic watershed. There is no other watershed when it comes to North and South America. It's a great divider. The message of Jesus has always been like that. It has always been divisive. And in our culture of, of tolerance, this can be a tricky issue to wrap our brains around, especially young people. I mean, it's, I, I get it, I wanna be tolerant too, but as Christians, we're not called to be tolerant, are we? We're called to be loving, which is so much harder and so much greater than tolerance. How many of you are middle children? Do you have any middle children? Uh, my, I married a middle child, and uh, you know, we have a sweet middle child now as well. But you know, middle children, one common trait of middle children is they want everything to, to be okay. They want everybody to get along. They want everybody to uh, kind of, you know, smooth over any conflict or, or stress. And our culture is kind of like that these days. We just kind of want everybody to, to get along. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not knocking everybody getting along, okay? That's great when everybody gets along. But instead of truly loving people, which often takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of hard work and a lot of thought and effort, we often just tolerate them instead. How, how about if I tell my wife, I tolerate you. <laughs> it's not gonna go real well. We're called to love. I don't wanna just be tolerated, I wanna be loved. Love is, this is a whole nother sermon, but I just wanna briefly mention that we're, we're called to love God and love our neighbors and to make disciples. Those are the three great commandments that we have. 
the great commandments and the great commission to love our neighbor with all that we are. But rather than risk offending folks, we're, we're far more prone to just capitulate to whatever they're saying or doing. And that's not what love does. Love seeks the best for the other, always, sacrificially, often. Jesus loves us, this I know. And therefore, he came to bring us the best. He came to show us the best ways, to let us know that following the ways of this world will only lead to death and destruction. But to follow his ways will lead to flourishing and thriving both in this life and in the next. But this message is incredibly divisive. To abide in Christ, to partake of his body and blood as we die to ourselves and live through him and for him in the abundant life is a divisive claim. Look what Jesus said, though. This has always been the, the case. Back in Luke chapter 12, verse 51 and 52, it'll be on the screens. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? What? Yes, I thought so. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. What? We don't mention that at Christmas, do we? I read that and I think, Jesus needs some PR help. You know, we could get some marketing guys. Jamie Dunham, you could work with this guy and you could, you know, say, hey man, that's not really gonna cut it in this world. You need to step up your marketing game or, or something. Maybe sensitivity training he could use, I don't know. But he's, he's never gonna grow a church preaching division. I would never do that. But division wasn't the point. Jesus didn't want to bring division, what he wanted to do was love us. And by loving us, he made these divisive truth claims. It was a secondary feature of his truth claims that it caused division. He wanted to love, and sometimes love has to take a side, or it ceases to be loving. Love must take a stand for the oppressed, for the marginalized in our society. Love must fight upstream for the truth in a culture that increasingly cares less about the truth. Love must strive for the best of the other always, even if that means causing division. Let's look at the context here for how the claims of Christ divide humanity. Remember that Jesus has been causing a ruckus already at this festival, at the Feast of Sukkot in Jerusalem. He shows up in the middle of the feast in the temple and he starts teaching with divine authority in the temple and everybody is, is freaking out because he claimed to be sent from God himself. And many people believed in him as the Messiah. But the Jewish authorities, the, the Sanhedrin, they were the, the, the ruling class of Jews, about 30 men that really controlled all of Judaism for not only Jerusalem but for the whole region of Judea. These, these 30 men are not having it. They're, not, they're gonna try to squash all this hype about Jesus. So they finally get up the courage to say, okay, let's arrest this guy. It's time to go ahead and take him. Look back at verse 32. Remember John verse 32. 
the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. That's the temple police. They put out an official warrant for Jesus' arrest. And the, the temple police in these days are actually Levites. They're trained as priests. They have a significant amount of religious education by being born into the tribe of Levi. They're the ones who are charged with keeping order in the temple area. And the Sanhedrin think, problem solved. We put the cops on them, and they work for us, and we've called for his arrest, and they're going to take him into custody. But they come back empty-handed to the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 45. The officers then come back to the chief priests and Pharisees who say to them, why did you not bring him? We told you to arrest him, and you come back without him. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Warren Wearsby, the great Baptist preacher, says they go to Jesus to arrest him, but it is they who are arrested by Jesus. These officers are, since they're priests, they know the scriptures. They have a significant amount of knowledge in the Hebrew Bible, and they recognize that something about the words that Jesus are, is speaking, that they have a divine supernatural power to them. It's not like some earthly rabbi, some earthly preacher talking. They become arrested by the word of God, spoken by the son of God himself. But the Sanhedrin, once again, isn't having it. They're not gonna compromise their already preconceived notions as to who Jesus is in order to allow this to perpetuate. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or any of the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of the important people, has anyone who matters actually believed in him? You guys are just puny step-ons. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, this unwashed, uncouth, uneducated crowd, that does not know the law is accursed. It's such an elitist response, isn't it? It's, it's so arrogant. The, the rabbinical snobbery at work in that statement is, is so plain to see. They're talking down to the temple police with a kind of theological arrogance that is meant to intimidate and to belittle. Often people who are on opposite sides of a dividing line of different watersheds, treat the people on the other side like this, with belittling intellectual contempt. We're smarter, so we're right. Or with dehumanizing characterizations, this uneducated crowd, they're terrible. Just look at the political dialogue these days on both sides of the political aisle, right? You hear a lot of this in our politics today. The Sanhedrin says, you guys should know better. You're not just cops, you're priests. You're Levites. You're not like this uneducated crowd. Come on, don't be deceived like them. So in comes Nicodemus. 
Remember this guy? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. He's the one to whom Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. That was Nicodemus. And he's part of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is, is part of the elite group that rules all Judaism, of all Jewish areas. And he speaks some sense into them. He, he asks a really good question here, doesn't he? Verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He doesn't say, you guys are out of line. Our law says this. Instead, he just asks a simple, humble question, knowing the answer to it. But this is an example of how we should treat people on the other side of the dividing line, isn't it? We ask them an honest question that we know the answer to, but we're trying to get them to see the truth. Remember Proverbs that says, Proverbs 15, that's 15.1, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So he gives them a gentle word here. He longs for the Sanhedrin to just consider the claims of Christ. He wants them to hear the truth claims of Jesus for themselves and be saved. That would be the best thing that could happen, is for them to realize that their Messiah had come to rescue them, but they don't want to hear it. Their hearts are hard. Israel's Savior had indeed arrived, and the rulers of Judaism missed it. Look at verse 52. They dismiss Nicodemus. They reply, are you from Galilee too? Are you just pulling for the home team here? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They say this with such confidence. And the irony is thick here because most good Jews that know their scriptures would know that Jonah, the prophet Jonah, came from Galilee, was born and raised in Galilee. The Sanhedrin are not, in fact, experts of God's word. They are not who they claim to be or whom they believe themselves to be, this intellectual superior group. The very people who just accuse the masses of ignorance are themselves ignorant. You know, after C.S. Lewis converted from atheism to Christianity, he became a great apologist. And, you know, apologetics is not apologizing, like, I'm sorry. Apologetics is defending the, the reasonableness and the truth of Christianity. And C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest apologists that ever lived. And when he was teaching at Oxford, he he taught in in literature, in English literature, but there was a club, like a lot of colleges have, uh, that was an atheistic club. And the club existed to debate the the truth claims of Christianity and to show the, the Christians how wrong they were. And Lewis said this about this club. We of the Christian party discovered that the weight of the skeptical attack did not always come where we expected it. Our opponents had to correct what seemed to us their almost bottomless ignorance of the faith they supposed themselves to be rejecting. <laughs> they would refute Christianity, and they would say, why, why are you against Christianity? They'd say, because it says this. They would say, no, no, it doesn't say that. And they had to educate them on what Christianity actually claimed. Sometimes our ignorant, preconceived notions of what is true 
divide us into the wrong group. And everyone is ignorant except for the omniscient God to some degree uh, in terms of humility, realizing our limitations. Sometimes we only think we know why we're in the camp that we're in. All Nicodemus wants the Sanhedrin to do is listen for themselves to the words of Jesus Christ and then consider whether he's a liar or a lunatic or in fact who he claims to be, Lord. Many people claim, I reject Christianity because I haven't been able to find the answers that I need for my life to make sense. And I've talked to some of these people and I realize soon that often they don't really want to find the true answers because they're hard. They haven't really looked for those answers that they don't want to hear. But once they come face to face with Jesus Christ, once they have an encounter with the living God, the risen Lord, like Nicodemus did, like the temple police did, they will soon realize no one ever spoke like this man. No one on earth has ever said the truth that Jesus has proclaimed on this earth, which is why Jesus has the authority to do what he does in John chapter eight. Many of you know this powerful story in John eight of the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus wrote something in the sand twice and then he forgave the woman and didn't condemn her. It's a powerful story, but most reputable scholars are now in agreement that this is not actually part of the Gospel of John. This was not original scripture. It's clear that this story was a much later addition to the Gospel of John. It was oddly inserted in this point in the book. It actually appears in different places in John. Um, in different manuscripts. More of the recent commentaries that I looked at don't even include any notes on this section because it's not really the word of God. And a lot of them include it as an excursus only um, because it's not really the word of God. All that being said, it's such a good story. It's so powerful. And there's no reason why we shouldn't believe this actually happened. This was probably an oral tradition, a story that was passed on by Jesus' disciples that I believe really happened. So we can learn from it and read it, but I wouldn't base your life on it. Does that make sense? It's not necessarily the sacred word of God, but it is true to the doctrine that we know of Jesus Christ and of his character. So let's keep that in mind as I read this morning. You can stay seated as I read John chapter 7 verse 53 through eight eleven, They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I love that. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a powerful story. Here we have a woman caught in the act of adultery, and as D.A. Carson says in his commentary, adultery is not one of those sins that takes place in splendid isolation, which begs the question, where is the man? Maybe he was faster than she was, and he he got away and, and left her to die on her own. Or maybe the accusers are so chauvinistic in this patriarchal society to believe that this is somehow only the fault of the woman. Either way, the the accusers are are not really concerned with justice. They want to trap Jesus. If he said, well, you got me, stone away, then he would be neglecting the gospel of grace that he came to bring us. Or if he said, no, 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 let's let this one slide, guys. Put your rocks down. Then he would be neglecting the justice of God. And here in this story, we see the central tension of the gospel itself. How can unholy people come to be joined to the high and holy God of the universe? How can God be just and forgive sin when he is a God of justice? How can his mercy and his truth both triumph in the cross of Christ? We're just saying, lead me to the cross where your love and mercy meet. In the cross of Christ, God becomes both just and the justifier who makes us just. Through the cross of Christ, God forged a way for unholy people to be connected to the holy God. So instead of judging this woman, Jesus instead judges the judges. He calmly bends down to right in the dirt of the temple courtyards. He's not in a hurry to answer their accusations. And what Jesus wrote, we don't know. And and rather than speculate on, on what he wrote, let's focus on what he actually says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That that sentence has always troubled me. I didn't know, does that mean that we, we shouldn't ever judge anyone? Or should our judges on all of our benches and our courts be perfect? Otherwise, they'd be empty. We'd, no one's perfect. That's not what he's saying here. The, the best sermon I ever heard on this passage was from Dr. Frank Lewis just up the road at First Baptist Nashville. I was a teenager. I remember him preaching this text. And when he, when he said this climactic words that Jesus says, he, he painted this picture of a raucous crowd with stones at the ready. You know, they would bind a person to a stake and they would hurl heavy stones at them until they died. And, and he painted this picture of this crowd ready. Just say the word, Jesus, we're gonna kill her right here. And then Jesus says, let he who's without sin throw the first stone. Somehow he had smuggled some rocks into the pulpit. And when he said that, he dropped one from behind his back onto the podium and it went plunk. And I was you know, woke up as a teenager, whoa, what's, what's happening? And then he said, and then another one fell. And he dropped another one, bang, onto, and I was thinking the deacons are gonna hate that, it's gonna mess up the wood, it's gonna, you know. I remember thinking, he's gonna get in so much trouble. But it was a powerful illustration. 
As the rocks fell, the crowd dissipates and goes away. No one is left to condemn this woman, and neither does Jesus. The image of the crowd slowly dispersing is sobering. The men who had accused this woman become the accused themselves. They come to shame her, and now it was they who had been shamed. Because Jesus didn't simply say, if you're sinless, throw the first stone. What most commentators agree on, what I'm now seeing, he's actually saying, he who has not committed this sin, throw the first stone. He was implying that infidelity was rampant among the Jewish men. That the, the Jewish men had gone around cheating on their wives. And you know, in diverse cultures around the world, infidelity runs rampant, wreaking havoc on families. I'm sure you know someone who's been affected by this scourge. And men often get by with a wink, wink. It's locker room talk, it's whatever. Whereas women often get a scarlet letter. This should not be. This story is a wake-up call to Christians to fight for healthy families, for healthy marriages, for fidelity, to treat both genders with equity when it comes to sin and healing. Jesus doesn't ask the woman if it's true. He knows it is. That's why he says, go and leave your life of sin. Sin no more. Jesus doesn't condemn her, though because she's already condemned under the law. In John chapter three, Jesus makes this clear. Remember what he told Nicodemus that night after he gives him the gospel, for God so loved the world. In the next verse, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The next verse, he says, the world's already condemned from sin. Christ offers us a spring of healing, a spring of spiritual living water that satisfies us as nothing else can. Before we partake of that healing water that, that fixes our marriages, that brings healing to our culture, that gives abundant life to us now and forever, we must realize our own thirst that spinning our wheels trying to get the things of this world will never satisfy it. We're never going to be right by the law. We can never be good enough to earn God's favor. It's a divisive claim. But the truth is that we stand condemned already by the holy, perfect law, which reveals God's holy, perfect standard of righteousness. But the gospel gives us hope that Christ has given us his perfect righteousness that he earned and he has taken our sin and shame upon himself in what Martin Luther calls a beautiful exchange. When we drink deeply of the living water, we're restored to our creator. We find that forgiveness and that mercy and that acceptance that we deeply long for in our souls. It only makes sense then that we would go now from this place and leave our sin at the door. We who've been forgiven much are committed to a life of holiness as our forgiver is holy and just. 
the experience of the amazing grace of God offered through Christ leads us to live a holy and obedient life, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've made a way for us. When our accusers come with stones at the ready, that you have said, go now, you are not condemned, but go and live a life of holiness, a life of thriving, an abundant life that does not capitulate to others, but that loves others enough to make divisive claims when the time comes. God, I pray that you would give us courage not to just tolerate people in this world, but to love them, to love them as you have loved us, to love them sacrificially when it costs us our own reputation, when it costs us money, when it costs us time, when it costs us social capital. Pray that you would help us to love others as you have loved us. Forgive us for picking up stones to condemn others when we are, are ignorant, when we are guilty ourselves, when our many frailties come screaming back. But help us also to remember that for those of us who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, that you have taken our sin, taken our shame, and removed it as far as east is from the west. God, I pray that we would be inspired by that grace to go now from this place and live a, a holy, obedient life by your grace and for your glory. God, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We pray all this in the high and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come forward now and talk to me about that right now. If you want to become a part of Woodmont Baptist Church and join this family of faith as a member, I'd love to talk with you about what that looks like. Maybe you just want to come and pray with somebody, pray at the altar. I'm going to ask Steve, if you'll come up here, Steve Wilkinson. I'm going to ask Jan, if you'll come up here as well. Brad, if you'll come. If you want to pray with one of our prayer warriors here, these are people I've prayed with who I know and trust and love. Or if you just want to come pray at the altar, it'll be open as well. We're going to sing the truth. This is my Father's world. Whenever I think about this song, I, I don't know how many of you are runners, but, you know, I, I'll tell you briefly, in, in Fieldstone Farms, where I used to live in Franklin, there was one house that I used to run by, and there was a little dog, and little dogs are the most vicious, you know, they got something to prove. And he would always come out and, and nip at my heels as I would run, but as soon as I passed that, that house's property, he'd stop. He'd only chase me in that property because dogs are territorial. They, they protect their property. Our God is territorial, and this whole world is His. And everywhere that we go and everywhere that we step is His property. And there is no condemnation for those of us who go anywhere in this world, no matter if it's work, play, home, school, whatever it may be, this is our Father's world. Let's stand and affirm that truth together as we sing. I invite you to come forward if you need to.